Hello, Midnight Myth listeners. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. You can learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm-hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth, and I do apologize. It's been a little while since we did a Midnight Myth episode. We had planned on doing this one earlier. Just to give you a little insight onto how the sausage is made, Laurel and I were also trying to buy a house The house buying process got very intense. We got incredibly busy. Lo and behold, we ended up not buying this house, which is much to our chagrin and sadness. And now that we are not buying this house, we certainly have time to record a Midnight Myth podcast. And it feels like buying a house or attempting to buy a house was very similar or thematically relevant to the subject at hand today because it feels like buying a house right now we're in philadelphia pennsylvania and we are trying to buy a home in the suburbs of pennsylvania which is a very competitive real estate market and it feels almost like you have to try to sell your soul if you're going to be able to buy a house it feels like you must make a deal with some type of a devil if not the devil himself in order to get a home under contract and to buy it and something that Laurel and I are just, we're too morally principled to sell our soul just for a piece of property, and hence our deal fell through. And that brings us to what we want to talk about. We had done an episode on Stranger Things, then The Witch, or that might be the other way around. Yeah, back, that's backwards. But... Yeah, but we had done the previous two episodes, and all of those had dealt with a theme that sort of seemed to be resonating this summer, and that is the theme of Satan, the devil. And we wanted to continue our conversations around all things satanic, devil worshipy, And that led us to one particular movie that, my goodness, when Laurel suggested that we do it, I'm like, why did I not think of doing this forever ago? It's one of my favorite movies, 1997 Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves and Charlize Theron's The Devil's Advocate. Woo, 
devil's advocate, baby. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. We've been sort of loosely branding our episodes this summer as the hashtag satanic summer. So talking about the witch and Black Phillip seducing Thomason into uh, a coven and then talking especially about satanic panic in the 1980s and how it relates to the character of Eddie Munson in Stranger Things. This was really the only logical next step was to go straight to one of the best, I think, on-screen adaptations of a lot of uh, biblical-adjacent literature and one of the best on-screen versions of The Devil. It also, it stars the great Al Pacino in, I think, one of his greatest roles, one of his most iconic roles, and really some great performances by Keanu Reeves and a very early career, Charlize Theron. So very excited to talk about it. I can't wait to dive in. There's a lot that we have to say. Really is a ton to say, and a lot of different avenues that we can go about in this particular movie. And so I can't wait to roll up my sleeves and get started. However, before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Ooh, hopefully I'm not too rusty. Our thing is just that we would love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, say hi, give us suggestions on future episodes. We are on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram. You can also find us on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. There's lots of extra content and blogs on that webpage, plus links to our Patreon and our merch store. Um, the best thing that you can do for the podcast costs you no money at all. That's just leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars really goes a long way for us. Other things that you can do right now to support Derek and myself Head on over to Sleep and Sorcery if you're having trouble sleeping right now. My uh, new-ish side podcast where I write and produce original sleep stories inspired by folklore, mythology, and fantasy. We've got some really fun episodes in the cooker coming for Sleep and Sorcery. You can find that anywhere podcasts are found or on Insight Timer, the meditation app. Wonderful. And fellow travelers on the path of the beam... Just an update on Wheel of Ka. We know we've been teasing an episode on the stand. I promise you we are close to getting that done. We are almost done rereading, or actually for both Steve and I, reading the stand for the first time. So if you wanted to read the stand before we recorded, you probably won't have the chance to get through all of it because the book is 10,000 pages long. But can't wait to talk all things the stand with you and share it. And on with the show. On with the show. Wonderful. Shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. This movie stars Kevin Lomax, a Florida defense attorney, acquitting a man accused of sexually assaulting a little girl. He ends up getting the girl off, and we learn that he has never lost a single case in his entire career. And he gets contracted to come to a major New York law firm called Milton Chadwick and Waters, and he's going to select a jury. His jury ends up acquitting the person. And this is where Kevin meets John Milton, the head of the firm, who recruits him to start acting as a criminal defense lawyer in this multinational, multi-corporate law firm that doesn't have a criminal department. And he goes to set, he goes to start at the Moyes case where he ends up helping get this guy who sacrifices a goat and gets arrested for animal cruelty off. Meanwhile, his wife, Marianne is not adjusting to the New York life very well as she is no longer has a job since they have all of this money. She has trouble making friends and starts having visions of demons coming to get her as well as seeing demons in the eyes of her friends and having a dream that her ovaries get ripped out only to then find that her ovaries do not function and she'll be unable to have children. Meanwhile, Kevin gets deeper and deeper into the New York nightlife, loving hanging out with his now mentor, John Milton, as they go about town in New York having a grand old time, definitely creating a rift between Kevin and his wife, Marianne. There is then a triple homicide by a man named Alexander Cohen, who's accused of killing a maid, his stepson, and his wife. Alexander Cohen is presumed guilty by everyone, and he is a client of Milton Chadwick and Waters, and Kevin goes to defend him. And the deeper Kevin gets into the case, the worse Mary Ann's health seems to be. Uh, 
Kevin's mother comes to visit and has an awkward interaction with John Milton as if she recognizes him. Kevin is ultimately successful in getting Cohen off by putting someone that he is 99.9% sure is lying on the stand, which then gets Alexander Cohen off, culminating with Marianne saying that she was assaulted and mutilated by John Milton. However, this was not possible because Kevin was in the room with Milton the whole time. Marianne ends up killing herself in a mental hospital. And this is when Kevin's mother comes and confesses that John Milton is actually Kevin's father. Kevin then goes and confronts Milton to learn that not only is he his father, he is actually the devil, and he wants Kevin to have sex with his half-sister so their child could then become the Antichrist, and so the book of Revelations can start to commence with the title fight between Satan in one hand and God on the other hand. Kevin, recognizing that he does have free will, decides instead of you know, doing this deed, he kills himself. And the movie resets back in Florida with the case with the child molester and Marianne being alive and Kevin deciding he will not help this child molester get off. And this reporter says, listen, I can turn you into a star for being the first lawyer ever with a crisis of conscience, which we learn is just Milton in another guise saying vanity is my favorite sin. Ooh, excellent recap. Thank you very much for that. Well, this movie came out in 97. It certainly is old. And this movie, while it was by no means a flop, was not a bomb. I don't think it won any awards. And I mean, it was not a hit, pardon me. It did well commercially, but not great. Does this movie hold up? I think this movie holds up remarkably well, surprisingly well, in fact. This was my second time watching it. And the first time watching it, I was a little bit overwhelmed with the amount of like over-the-top camp that I wasn't expecting there. I thought it was going to be a much more serious film than it is. And it is a serious film, but I think there's just a level of uh, of camp and tongue-in-cheekiness that I wasn't prepared for the first time. But the second time watching through, I just feel like it all lands really, really well. Uh, there are a few CGI special effects that, if they were made today, would look better, but the film is pretty restrained, I think, with how it uses those, and for the most part looks great, leans into this kind of New York law gothic, legal gothic, if you will. It's got a very defined style, a very defined tone that feels in line with things like The Omen and Rosemary's Baby, but also doesn't feel like anything else. Al Pacino, like I said, delivering a career best performance, He is one of my favorite actors and I think truly one of the great actors that we have today. And he is just hamming it up. It is such a delight to watch him just spit out these incredible one-liners for one. I I wrote down a ton of the amazing one-liners that he has, but he's so charismatic. This character is really compelling and I think in many ways very sympathetic and surprisingly sympathetic. I have a lot of a lot of thoughts about that. Um, but yeah, I just think this this movie's wonderful. It's got a lot to say. Y- you can't really divorce it from the historical context of the time that it was made. I think the OJ trial has its hands, its gloves <laughs> wrapped around this movie, if you will. And so you can understand why it's taking lawyers to the extent that it is, being like lawyers are these slimy bottom feeders. But it it has so much fun with that concept and with that premise. And I, I just, I love it. I have lots to say about it, but I, I love it. Could you expand on what you mean by the OJ trial having its glove all around it? Yeah, so this movie comes out just shortly after uh, the OJ Simpson verdict. I think about three years after. It really, I, I, I believe this concept it was adapted from a novel and i believe the concept was kind of languishing in development hell until the oj trial and that's when lawyers and the legal system and the court system uh the justice system were thrust into the spotlight and everybody wanted a piece of these legal thrillers and john grisham style stories so we're also looking at the very complex archetype of the defense lawyer. We're looking at Johnny Cochran types, people defending folks that a lot of people just 
go ahead and assume are guilty, but the justice system is built in America such that your guilt or innocence is not quite as important as the story that a lawyer can tell about your case and about your narrative. So I think it has some fun with that. I think it's playing off of how gripped to our television sets, especially people in America were uh, at the time of the O.J. Simpson trial and at the time of the verdict. And it likes to play in the moral gray area that exists in the American justice system. Yeah, I think there is a, I think that's a really good call out because the O.J. Simpson trial brought America to its knees. Depending on how old you are, you may be uh, too young to remember, or it may have been even before you were born. But O.J. Simpson was accused of murdering his wife and his wife's girlfriend. He fled from the- Boyfriend. Boyfriend, pardon me. He fled from the scene famously in his Ford Bronco with the cops chasing him. And he was as guilty as sin. To date, there are no other suspects. There's not even an investigation. O.J. Simpson did, in fact, everyone believes, murder these two people. But because he was a celebrity and because he was able to hire such a uh, robust legal defense team, he was able to work within the system. His lawyers were able to work within the system, cast enough doubt so that he got a not guilty verdict. And springing from that was a pervasive sense of cynicism around the American legal justice system. A cynicism that I think exists till today, that depending upon your ability to get access to the best legal team, will ultimately determine whether or not the justice system can bring its hammer down upon you. Poor people, people that are struggling, middle-class people, The justice system can just brutally chew up and spit out. But if you're wealthy and privileged enough, you can manipulate the justice system enough so that you do not be held accountable to your crimes and your um, and your malfeasance. Kevin Lomax is the embodiment of that type of human being, someone that does not care whether or not you did or did not do the crime someone that simply only cares if you are getting paid your billable hours. If you can get me the money that I need, I can then get you off. And that's how it works. It's totally transactional. It's divorced of principle. It's divorced of morality. In the movie, Marianne has a very interesting moment as she's being pushed into the mental asylum. And she looks at Kevin and she goes, I know why this is happening. It's the blood money. We knew they were guilty, but you just couldn't stop winning. And we just drunk this blood money down. And she's not wrong. Kevin's entire job is just to get people off so that he can get more clients at higher billable hours to get them off, whether or not they do or do not did it. Kevin does have, his character has a bit of a moral compass. There's a moment where he considers walking out on the Gettys case. And he is somewhat tormented by it. And he is also somewhat tormented by the Cohen case and putting Cohen's secretary on the stand, knowing that she's lying about the affair, that that didn't actually happen. But push comes to shove his competitive nature, his desire to win, his vanity, his sin allows him to overcome whether what he's doing is right or wrong. And he goes and he ends up winning again and again and again. So much so that it catches the attention of the devil himself. Excellent. I, I'm glad you called out those moments that he does experience this doubt over whether what he's doing is right, because that helps us to invest in Kevin and understand the ultimate choice that he makes, that he, yes, will always be tempted by vanity, pride, greed, but he also has something pulling him toward doing what's right. He has love, he has compassion, and he has shame. And I think that is really important to understanding his character. So we're kind of already running with this thematic uh, string here. Would you like to talk, would you like to dive deep into some deeper analysis? I most certainly do, but I do want to go on the record and say that, yes, I think this movie holds up I think the three main leads and their acting prowess are the reason this movie holds up in Charlize Theron, um, Keanu Reeves, and then the immortal, legendary Al Pacino. Al Pacino as the devil is such great casting. I remember just in prepping for this, 
actually refused this role several times and they kept going to him, please do it, please do it, please do it. Keanu Reeves actually passed on Speed 2 and an $11 million paycheck to take a pay cut to do The Devil's Advocate. And when they found out that, yes, Al Pacino wanted to do it, but the movie didn't have the budget to pay Al Pacino what he wanted, that Keanu Reeves took a pay cut even more. So he could have made $11 million to make Speed 2. He takes a pay cut to do The Devil's Advocate and then cuts his salary again. So they could afford Pacino. So Al Pacino can be in this movie. And I do think that Pacino didn't know about this at the time, but found out years later and then donated like the equivalent of his salary from Devil's Advocate to some good cause. It's, it, he's a cool dude. As if you don't need more evidence that these are some of the best celebrities out there, Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. How awesome is that story? And I think there is something truly special in Al Pacino's performance. I think the way that he licks his lips, almost like he is a serpent. And there's a thing that he does with his eyes where that they can go from humor to vacuous to intensity all in the span of a scene. Just think of him in the scene in the subway when he's looking at the two men and his eyes just seem like blank. And then when he goes in to explain what's actually happening to convince this guy to go kill his cheating drug using wife and their lover, it then gets to this intensity. Then at the end he starts laughing with Kevin and then it's humorous. All in the span of the scene, he just does this amazing work with his eyes that I've never seen any actor before or since be able to do. I think it's just worth noting how special Al Pacino's performance is as the devil and how he may, in fact, actually be Satan. And he's just having the best time with it. That's my favorite part, is that he is loving every second of being John Milton. It's it's absolutely brilliant. The scene where they're at Eddie Barzun's funeral and he approaches the well of holy water and looks like right into the eyes of God in this house of God and just smiles as he's about to stick his finger in the water. There's just nothing quite like it. The delight and joy that he's having playing this role. I have a question for you. This is not something we planned, but I want to read. This is a bit of a midnight myth boomerang. I want to read a quote from the movie from some of the amazing monologues that Al Pacino does. And then I have a question for you about it. Okay. So this is when Al Pacino is going on that God is an absentee landlord, trying to convince Kevin there's no reason to have guilt. Don't carry it for God because God's a kind of a jerk. God gives man instincts. He gives man pleasure. And then just for his fun, tells him you can't do it. And then Kevin says, better reign in hell than serve in heaven. Is that it? To which John replies, why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has ever been inspired to have. I care about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him in spite of all of his imperfections. I'm a fan of man. I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. Who in the right man, Kevin, would possibly deny that the 20th century was entirely mine? All of it. And I want to highlight that quote, and I want to ask you a question. Is the movie The Devil's Advocate pro-Satan? Is The Devil's Advocate being The Devil's Advocate? Is that what you're asking? I mean, is it articulating a particular type of satanic philosophy, one that is taking the devil and elevating the role of the devil thematically outside of someone that is just evil and giving a sympathetic argument to what the devil wants. So I think this is an incredible question, and I have a few ways that I want to attack it and answer it. That is one of my favorite moments in the movie, maybe my favorite, that particular speech, because it really is compelling and convincing as far as I'm concerned. The idea that I've nurtured every sensation mankind has had, and I never judged him, I never rejected him, that is absolutely in line with how we see John Milton behaving throughout the movie. He nurtures sensations, he nurtures impulses, he nurtures choice, he nurtures free will, even though it's a bitch. You never see him doing anything evil, you never see him kill anyone, but you do see him inspire people to either make a good choice or a bad choice. He just leads them 
to the fork in the road and lets them go their way, even though he's probably trying to tip the scales one way or another. But I think there are, again, a few ways to attack this question. One of them I'm going to come back to later in the episode because I am going to talk about uh, Paradise Lost and John Milton. I'm going to have to, especially if we're talking about valorizing Satan or valorizing the devil. But I also want to acknowledge that during this scene, this is the scene where John Milton is being a lawyer, right? He is arguing the case of Satan. He is arguing the devil's case to Kevin because, again, free will, it's a bitch. Kevin has to volunteer to be part of the devil's plan. And Christabella is there, too. Christabella, I also love that that is her name. Connie Nielsen in an early career role because Christabel is the name of a female vampire in a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, but that is, I digress. She's there, she's witnessing this, and she's laughing. She's back there smirking, like here he goes on his speech, making the devil's case. Because while what he's saying is internally consistent with his character, and is a pretty convincing way to look at okay, maybe the devil is the person who's actually in the thick of it, the person who walks among man and says, whatever you do, it's okay. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to send you to some torture or paradise based on what you do. She's also acknowledging that he is probably full of it, right? That this is a little bit of BS. Ultimately, he wants to you know, lead his evil beastly forces against the forces of quote-unquote good. He's just making an attractive case, saying, I'm a humanist, I'm the last humanist. That's the great irony of it, right? The irony of the devil saying, I'm a humanist. Maybe he makes a decent case and it convinces you, but Christabella is over here laughing because she knows that it's BS. So I think the movie is making one case and it's making it like a lawyer but there's also somebody laughing at it because they know that it's not true. I do not remember seeing her laughing in that scene at all. So good on you paying deeper attention to that scene because I'm just watching Al Pacino do his right. thing. It's all the, she's got this expression on her face that's just like, oh, here he goes again, making, making this stuff up. Just my thought on that, because I had not considered that interpretation. She might be back there laughing, but do you think that is to... Because she, bu- she buys into it. She's his acolyte. Yeah, 100%. She wants to give birth to the Antichrist. So if, her, if she's laughing at that argument and she thinks that it's BS, is that more... Is that, are we meant to take that, that the movie is saying that his argument is BS? I think the movie is hedging its bets a little bit because a movie in 1997 can't just be like, hail Satan, right? It has to punish the devil. But I also think that Christabella here is part of this mission because it's the mission of Satan, not because she's a humanist, right? So she is, I think, smirking at the way that he is pitching this to Kevin because Kevin still has an inkling of innocence left in him. I don't think that she is like falsely part of this this cause, I think she's part of this cause. She's bought in on the devil crusading against God, um, but she still gets a, a kick out of the way he has to pitch it to an innocent person. Got it. Quote, unquote, innocent. Because Kevin's not yeah. that Kevin's innocent. Kevin's not that innocent. But he's not willing to just sign his name in the devil's book at that point. Right. All right. Now, that, that's an interesting way to interpret it. I think it might be worthwhile to say, what does it mean to be a Satanist today? Because there are things called Satanists, people called Satanists, and it'd be worth just sort of briefly discussing that there is a thing called the Church of Satan, but they're not devil worshipers. There's a difference between devil worship and Satanism that's worth calling out. And now I am not an expert. I have read the Satanic Bible, and so if there are any Satanists out there that I am not doing justice to your your beliefs, please feel free to reach out and correct me. Um, But as I understand it, Satanism was started by this guy named LeVay, and LeVay was interested in philosophy. He was in particular inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche, and he started the Church of Satan that for the most part takes, the Church of Satan are full of agnostics and atheists, and they take Satan as a symbol of free will, 
of independent sort of punk rock libertarian virtues that say that you are responsible for your own moral upkeeping, you are responsible for your own life, and that God is a symbol of conformity, a symbol of being part of the herd and part of the sheep, and is not necessarily um, a thing for good. And in this character, John Milton, e.g. the devil, I do think there's an argument to say, hey, if God is so powerful, why am I even here? Which is an argument that has been brought upon by people challenging Christianity for a very long time. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-smart, if God understands the entire universe and is good in every action, how did the devil come to be? Because why wouldn't you create a world where there is no Satan, e.g. a world where there is no evil? And I think that'd be an interesting place to begin. How did the concept of Satan emerge within monotheistic, first ancient Hebrew, and then into Christian tradition? And it is a bit of a strange history, and it's not very linear. And it does complicate sort of the metaphysical grounds of Christian thinking, as well as in Jewish thinking, that an all-knowing, all-powerful monotheistic God but somehow there's this thing running around creating evil. Would that be okay with you? I would love to do that. I just want to quickly shout out the Satanic Temple as well, because you mentioned the Church of Satan, very important in Satanism. There's also a, 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 a Satanic Temple, which is a different version of Satanism, but I think it probably has a little bit more popularity, to, popularity today. Both are atheistic traditions, uh, and the Satanic Temple, very humanistic, atheistic tradition that takes things like Satan and Baphomet as symbols to understand how to live a better life on Earth. They're also very involved in the separation of church and state. Um, so just wanted to shout out those two different branches of Satanism that still exist. Wonderful. So let me dive into some history of the Satan. I want to caveat this as not my wheelhouse, so I'm going to do my best to overview what I've researched, but there's probably a lot more that I don't know than I do know. And again, listeners, keep me honest if I get anything wrong or if I don't know. Uh, general thinking about monotheism in the ancient Hebrews is that the ancient Hebrew religion probably wasn't originally a monotheistic. It was probably originally polytheistic until round about the time of Exodus, in which then we have the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is thou shalt not have any other gods other than me. And you only need that commandment if you admit that there are other gods. They had come from Egypt, that the ancient Hebrews were living and surviving in ancient Egypt. Most likely they had to participate in ancient Egyptian religious festivals that was required by law. So if you immigrate to ancient Egypt and there's a religious festival that you have to participate in, you should and so around about the time of Exodus, which can be roughly dated around 1200 BCE, that's when we see the theoretical shift. No one really knows. A lot of this is guessing from sources, the Bible, etc., that that's when monotheism really started to kind of develop. And that's when you also start to have the ancient Israelite as a people, as a city-state around Judea, and then an ancient, ancient nation-state. Wow, pardon me. So where does Satan fit in all of this? The original term for Satan is ha-satan, or ha-satan. Ha in ancient Hebrew meaning the, Satan meaning opposer, or sometimes translated as adversary. So the adversary or opposer. Satan is a major character in the book of Job, in which God and Satan are discussing Job, in which Job, who has been very fortunate, they create a wager that if Satan removes all of his fortunes, that Job would turn on God. And Job almost does. And then God comes and says, who are you to question me? And Job continues with his faith despite all of the suffering. But it's worth noting that Satan at this time is enacting the will of God. God is directing Satan and tells Satan what to do. He is not an equal or opposite force. He's not unenacting the will of God. And this uh, brings us to Deuteronomy, in which God declares that he controls both prosperity and suffering. Now, a little bit of ancient Egyptian, sorry, ancient Hebrew history, they end up getting kicked out of their home by Nebuchadnezzar, 
who's an ancient Babylonian king who burns the Temple Mount to the ground. Then we flash forward to the rise of the Persians under Cyrus the Great, and he brings the Hebrews back to Jerusalem and lets them rebuild their temple. Now, it's worth noting that Cyrus was a follower of something called Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, yeah. Which is an ancient Persian religion where there are two opposing forces, one which brings forth light and goodness and one that brings forth destruction. And this is where we start to see Satan being described in ancient Egypt who takes on that sort of destructive force. So this is where we start seeing a little bit of Satan becoming an opposer to God and perchance the person that enacts evil. However, it's worth bringing up Genesis. One, I think Genesis is all over this this movie that we have. The color green pops up, characters wear it, Marianne tries to paint it, all of these symbols of the garden, they're right by, their building is right by one of the biggest parks in New York. There's a lot of green and, you know, imagery, which I think is Genesis. It's worth noting that when Eve bites the apple, tempted by the snake, that this establishes the origin of evil in a Jewish and a Christian cosmology, and it comes from human free will. Humans can choose, they can be tempted and swayed, but ultimately they can make a choice. This is what destroys Eden and brings out evil in the world. And it is because of that that Earth is no longer a paradise, and it is because of free will and people's ability to choose, which is a central theme in this movie. People make choices. The devil is not a puppeteer. He could potentially sway you, but ultimately the choice is yours. However, now around you know 539 BCE, Cyrus brings Zoroasterism. He brings the ancient Hebrews back to their home, and we start seeing an evolution of Satan as an opposer. This is around about the time when people start to guess and say, hey, maybe that serpent in Eden was actually Satan the whole time. It wasn't originally believed to be. It was just supposed to be a talking snake at first, but people started to look at it and say, maybe it's not just a talking snake. Maybe the talking snake is Satan. And then around 150 BCE, this is where we start getting literature that personifies evil. And this is where Satan becomes the personification of evil in ancient Judaism. This is also where we start seeing the belief of as above, so below. So there is a God who has an angel that serve on his court. And then on below, you have a king who then has his court in which he has his lieutenants and his viceroys and his governors, etc. And then you have Satan who rules hell and has his court. And this is where we start getting demonology. So 150 BCE. So tracking this history, Around 1200 BCE, we see the establishment of monotheism, at least codified in law, through the issuing of the Ten Commandments by Moses. Then 550 BCE, we see the establishment of maybe an antagonist or someone that has some sway over God. 150 BCE is the fleshing out of demons and demonology and the birth of Satan as we know it today. That's where it really begins. So you're talking about a thousand-year theological history between the formation of monotheism and the idea that there was an actual devil, and that devil stood in opposition to God. And it is now the devil that causes evil, not necessarily people. Because before then it was people. Before then it was to stand... So in ancient pagan religions in particular the ones of the ancient Near East, because the Greeks are a little different. The gods are as, they give as many blessings as they do as many curses. The gods are responsible for evil. They get pissed off, they sink your ship. They like you, your ship gets to go. They get pissed off, there's famine. And in the ancient Hebrew tradition, evil comes from Eve and Adam rejecting God and choosing to eat the apple and then forming civilization So free will is what causes evil. But over a span of time, that then starts to take shape into the form of a devil, a devil that's enacting its will against God, and it is the devil then that causes evil. And it absorbs a little bit of Zoroasterism, and then here we have 
that earth is now a battlefield among God and Satan over who can acquire the most amount of souls. I think it's particularly problematic um, ontologically, which is to say, if it is true that there is a God, and if it is true that there is a Satan, and that the way we conceive of Satan now is what Satan is, and the way we conceive of God is the way that God is, there is a big problem in this worldview, and that is, who's more powerful? And clearly, there's more evil in the world than good, whether that is from natural evils such as floods, famines, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, or man-made evils such as war. Um, And clearly, there's more of it. So if you do take this view, it puts this ancient Hebrew, now modern Jewish and modern Christian idea, it becomes a little philosophically unstable because why worship God if all there is is evil in the world? Isn't it true then that Satan is more powerful than God? Conversely, if that's not true, then God, knowing what Satan would do, chose to allow Satan to do what Satan does, and hence God can no longer be benevolent, then God's kind of a jerk. And this is, I think, the worldview that John Milton is operating in, that what he's doing is not evil. God is actually the evil. That Milton is actually, hey, this is, I am just treating humans and giving humans what they've asked for. I'm helping humans be more human. And in this way, the devil's advocate kind of flips this. And this is a ancient problem for both Judaism and Christianity, that there are tons of philosophers and theologians who've written about it and are still writing about it today that have answers to that. So don't don't let me shadow shatter what you think. But it is worth noting that this is the problem, this philosophical problem of Christianity is one where John Milton's character steps in and fits like a perfect puzzle piece. That's exactly what he's responding to. You're right. And the fact that he's able to say God is an absentee landlord, that God rejected man, but I never rejected him. This is what he's referring to, Adam and Eve being cast out and left on their own to start civilization. God let them leave the garden and then was like, I'm hands off. The rules that he talks about that God has set out, that is kind of a sick joke, right? Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, but don't swallow. There's this great irony that he is accusing God of sitting back and watching mankind have these urges, have desires, and then have rules that are in opposition. I also just want to revisit at the quote that you read, the end of it, he says, uh, the 20th century was entirely mine, all of it. He's talking about two world wars. He's talking about a century of socio-political upheaval and great, incredible um, advancement too, economic advancement, globalization, uh, advancements in you know social, uh, yeah, technology, rights, liberation, but also a century of the atom bomb. You know, that is is all stuff he can claim because this is a character who is saying, I'm the one who got in here and fostered free will. I'm the one who got in here and nurtured mankind's uh, obligations, mankind's obsessions, mankind's desires and impulses, whether those are for good, the greater good, or for let me see how big of an explosion I can make and how many people I can hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with all of that. And um, it's worth noting that then in Christian theology, Satan then takes on this same role as the opposer of God. And just to mention one person who has written about the problem of evil extensively is St. Augustine, a late Roman, early medieval uh, philosopher, theologian, who is responsible for a lot of the thought and structure behind Christianity. And he reverts back to it. No, it's people. It's not Satan. It's free will. It is people that choose. Yeah, free will is the solution. And free will is where evil comes from, too. That people choose evil, and that's why there is evil. People reject God, and that's why there's evil. And that is the room in which Satan then operates. And if there's one thing that's clear coming out of this movie... It's that people can choose, and their choices do matter. 
And that, I think, is something, it's an interesting meditation. Yeah, and I think it handles it pretty well, pretty delicately. So I I love it. I loved that intro to Satan, the thousand years of philosophical development and religious development that led us to even getting close to what Satan would become in you know the, the common era, and then only another 2,000 years or so to get to Al Pacino as the devil. But I think we can all admit that Satan has found his crowning achievement in this performance, right? But that is really, really helpful to understand, especially one thing that I loved was that you talked about how they sort of looked back and were like, maybe the the serpent in the uh, in the book of Genesis is actually Satan, and we're mapping that back onto scripture. I think that's really interesting. That's also the basis of some of the stuff I want to talk about as well. Would you mind a, a quick segue into literary history? Sure, and I just want to thank the ancient Hebrew people for writing things down so that we actually yeah. know what you are thinking, and that is so helpful when there you're trying to study this stuff. There are so many cultures who didn't write any of this down and think about how much we could have from history if, if we just had a record. So that's a good point and a good call out. So I'm going to take a quick pivot into literature I'm going to talk about two literary influences on this movie, Devil's Advocate. The first one I'm just going to talk about briefly, and I think we have to because at the center of this movie is a deal with the devil, the idiomatic expression that we all love, the devil's advocate. And the deal with the devil is such a common cliche in storytelling now that we rarely think of where it came from. But the most prominent story of a deal with the devil also called a Faustian bargain, is, of course, the story of Faust. It's a really old German legend, uh, but the most definitive, most popular version, most popular telling of the Faust legend is by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. This was written in, like, late 18th century. And so he adapts this story into a play that's in, uh, it's written in poetic verse, And it has two parts. I'm only going to talk briefly about the first part with regard to the devil's advocate. But what happens with Faust, this character is either a scholar or an alchemist who has a certain limited knowledge, limited understanding of alchemical um, mystery and wisdom. And he wants to make a deal with the devil so that he can have access to unlimited wisdom, magical power, alchemical secrets, etc., One day he's followed home by a poodle, and the poodle turns into the devil's servant, Mephistopheles. And Faust and Mephistopheles enter into a wager whereby Faust can be granted these alchemical secrets and all of this scholarly knowledge in exchange for his soul. There is a condition on it that... uh, The devil can't have Faust's soul until he provides Faust a moment of such pure ecstasy and elation that that, at that moment, Faust could just die. So the devil has to deliver on this like pure ecstatic moment in order to get Faust's soul, but it's pretty much in the bag. And now Faust has all this power and all this, uh, you know, access and all these riches and Mephistopheles is kind of just hanging out with him. And then Faust falls in love with this woman named Gretchen. And Gretchen is a young woman. She uh, lives with her family, with her mother, and she's very pious, very, very Christian. Faust seduces her, and out of wedlock, they produce a child. And Gretchen is so ashamed that she drowns her, uh, her new child, her unbaptized, her child out of wedlock, and kills the baby. And then she is imprisoned for her crimes and she's in prison repenting for her crimes. And there are two versions of the end of this part of Faust. Uh, One in which there's a choir of angels looking down on Gretchen in prison, repenting for her crimes. And the choir of angels is like, she will be saved because she's ultimately so pious and she only did what she did because she was manipulated by Faust and the devil through him. The other version of the play ends with Mephistopheles and Faust thinking about Gretchen locked up in prison and just being like, it's too bad she's going to hell. 
So there's like a happy ending to this or there's a really, really sad ending to this. Either way, it ends up with this poor girl just absolutely ruined by her relationship with a man who is having his strings pulled by demons. So I wanted to bring that in because we have the titular kind of deal with the devil, the Faustian bargain, but we also have a story of a woman who had very little control over uh, the devil's control of the main character and who suffers greatly because of what the man she loves is going through. And I think we see a lot of that in Marianne. We see a lot of the confinement. We see a lot of the um, disappearance of agency between Gretchen and Marianne. Uh, Marianne, who had a job, who had friends, who had you know some some level of agency and autonomy in the world that she lived in in Florida, even if they just lived in a condo. She had her relationship. She had her marriage. And then once she gets to New York, she is trapped. She's confined. She's isolated. She's alone. And she's going through this horrible experience uh, with no control over the situation. So I definitely wanted to pull in the relationships between those two characters. Yeah, a few things I'd like to pull out of that, too. It's worth noting that from the story of the Garden of Eden and onward, there's always been this sort of patriarchal, women are the tempters, women are the ones that are bringing about sin, and women are the ones that are kind of mucking everything up for everybody else. So in the Garden of Eden, there is the Tree of Knowledge, you are not allowed to eat of the fruit. The snake comes and says, yo, you, yo, Eve, honey, have some of that. And she ultimately does and then convinces Adam to do it. And that gets them kicked out of Eden and kicked out of paradise. In The Devil's Advocate, we have a similar view of female sexuality. And we have two different, um, you know, archetypes. We have the Mary Ann, who is the even though she's not overtly religious and is okay with her husband getting people off, she is still someone that represents traditional womanliness. She is. She wants to have children. She wants her family to thrive. She is innocent. She doesn't go out drinking and boozing with John Milton. And she's just simply a, a figure of sort of traditional virtuous femininity juxtaposed to Isabella, who is a temptress, she's seductive, and she ultimately is the one that wants to pull Kevin away from Marianne, destroying that sort of traditional maternal woman for a more sexy womanness. And what does it turn out that she is? She's actually his sister. So it's even compound that it's incestuous in its very nature. And it's ultimately Isabella that John Milton pulls in to try to tempt Kevin. Even though he is not fully tempted, he is lusting after his sister the whole time, e.g. lusting after this different version of femininity. And this is something that echoes in both Christian and Jewish and Islam that women can tempt you and you should not be tempted by them. And it is through women that men get ruined. And similar then in Faust, we have this young woman who represents virtuousness, who then gets tempted, and depending upon which ending of the story, she's eternally damned for it. Yeah, well, and then you you talked about you know the duality between these two kinds of femininity. We have this Madonna whore complex that's part of Devil's Advocate, but I also do think there is something a little bit more progressive about the way the Devil's Advocate handles those two kinds of femininity, because... I think it's really amazing that Marianne is presented as a kind of feminine virtue and a kind of feminine innocent, but she's also very sexually active. And yes, Kevin eventually gets tempted by this slightly kinkier version of his wife, but we do get to see innocence and virtue and purity in a woman who enjoys having sex, in a woman who has an active sex life, and in a woman who is confident in her sexuality for the most part. So I do think that is a pretty progressive way to present femininity and devil's advocate that I do just want to highlight here. Uh, I, yeah, and I wasn't trying to say they were doing it wrong. No, I, I, I just wanted to bring that dimension in because I, I just we haven't talked about that aspect of it yet, and I do think that is really cool. And I think 
also does find some precedent in another piece of literature that I finally want to wrap around to, unless you wanted to say any more about Faust. Yeah, one other thing I'd like to point out, too, is the whole deal with the devil is a echo from paganism, yeah. which is about having a transactional relationship to the divine. And we see that here in this movie, too, with the character, oh gosh, I forget his name, who kills the goat, who says, think of blood like spiritual currency. Philip Moyes, yeah. Ph Philip Moyes, thank you. And that Philip Moyes, in the Moyes case, he sacrifices animals so that he can have spiritual currency to which that he can yeah. exchange for favors for the real life. In ancient pagan religion, you would go to an altar and make a sacrifice in the hopes that the god would then return something back to you. You give life to the gods, they give you their blessings back. And that transactional relationship is sort of implicit in the deal with the devil. We've talked about this before, but many of the uh, characteristics of a Christian medieval Satan come from and are adapted by ancient Roman and Greek pagan religious traditions, such as the devil taking the, uh, uh, the look of a fawn, taking the look of Pan, because Pan was one of the most prominent uh, cults for the commoners. So you make Pan into the devil, so you make them into devil worshipers, which is instead of worshiping your pagan religion, you're now worshiping the devil. Sounds a lot worse, which is where we get the idea of devil worship to begin with, there have never actually been any recorded instances of cults that actually worship the devil for real, that actually say, hey, I worship Satan and I want Satan to come to earth and kill everybody, is not an actual real phenomenon. It only exists in our paranoia and in our narratives. Yep, very important point there. So I am going to turn our eye to Paradise Lost to close us out today because Al Pacino plays a character named John Milton in this movie, so it could not be showing you in brighter flashing lights that that is what we're looking at, an adaptation or a retooling of John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. Uh, I'll give you a brief kind of overview of the story. Uh, the first edition of this comes out, I think, in 1667, which is really a shame that Milton couldn't finish it in time to release it in 1666, but here we are. Milton is one of my favorite poets. I'll just say my very favorite poem of all time is an elegy called Lycidas, uh, and Milton is truly just a, a master of poetry. But he writes Paradise Lost, which is considered his masterpiece in Greek epic poetry style. It is an epic poem, and the conventions that we expect of epic poetry include the invocation of a muse, which Milton does, but instead of invoking one of the Greek muses or someone from classical mythology, he invokes the Holy Spirit. So this means he writes in the first few lines to the Holy Spirit and asks for their blessing or for them to work through him so that he can write this poem. Another aspect of Greek epic poetry that we would expect is that it centers around a main hero. Paradise Lost is largely centered around Satan as its hero. And also another convention that we would expect of an epic poem is that it begins in what's called in medias res, or in the middle of the story. Paradise Lost begins right smack in the middle of the action with the end of Satan's rebellion against God, where he was Lucifer, the angel at the right hand of God, and then he rebelled and was cast out, becomes Satan, and is now in hell figuring out how to regroup and get his revenge against God. So his plan is to uh, go to earth, is to leave pandemonium, all the demons, and mess around with humanity. That's how he's going to get his revenge against God. There's a parallel story that's happening at the same time as we're following Satan's nefarious plans, and that parallel story is a very different kind of epic. It is not an epic of war, it is an epic of marriage. It's the story of Adam and Eve. Milton is pretty revolutionary, even in the 17th century, about how he presents the couple, because they're in the Garden of Eden, and they have kind of total freedom, save for the one command about the fruit. You don't eat the fruit on the tree. Uh, and they also have an active sexual relationship. They're husband and wife. They have sex. It's just considered sinless or 
not lustful. So what they're doing actually is very innocent. Then, after the business with the apple, when Eve is manipulated and tempted by Satan, the serpent is absolutely Satan in this version of the story, she gives the apple to Adam, and Adam knows that what she has done is sinful. She, he knows that she has broken God's only command, but he eats the apple willingly, commits the sin willingly, not in any amount of ignorance, because he loves Eve and he is bound to her. So he's thinking, my fate is your fate. Any ill will that comes to you because of this, I have to suffer too because I love you and you're my wife. So now that they've eaten the fruit, their sex turns kind of kinky and turns kind of lustful. So now it's looked upon with this uh, sort of darker, more sinful edge. It's a sin that they experience together. And after this happens, Adam and Eve are so racked with guilt that they just experience this phantasmagoria. They can't sleep. All their dreams are shameful, are guilty. And together they start to repent for their sins. And they're like, please, I hope God will forgive us. Ultimately, just as in the Bible, Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden. That's the paradise lost of the title of the poem. But the archangel Michael, as he's delivering this sentence to Adam and Eve, says to Adam, you may find a paradise within thee, happier far. He's saying, hey, you might not live in the Garden of Eden anymore. You might not live in a literal paradise, but there is great joy and elation to be found in domestic bliss, right? There is love to be found in your marriage, and there is still paradise that you can find within yourself and within your relationship to God. So from there, Adam and Eve go out and they make a life. They start civilization. They keep practicing their devotion to God. They just don't live, literally live in his garden and talk to him every day. They don't have a personal closeness to him. They have a distant relationship, but they still have a relationship to God. And now that they have knowledge and they have an understanding of the consequences of their free will, they are arguably richer for it, even though they have lost this paradise. And they give you know, mankind this great gift of free will and of knowledge. The implication here is that a domestic life, a marriage, a family, a relationship can be a paradise, right? It can be as good as living in the Garden of Eden. So, to one extent, Satan wins at the end of this story because he has tempted man to commit sin and to defy God. But there's also so, so much that is gained in the act of eating the apple by mankind because it's the, it's the, the affirmation of free will, right? It's punk rock. It's freedom, baby. It's like free will is a bitch, but now we have it. And now we can go out and make the world in our own image. So Paradise Lost has these really humanistic um, interpretations. A lot of people look at it, especially the romantics, look at this and say, this is a story about Satan being a tragic hero who has given mankind this incredible gift and who deserves to be looked at in a different light, at least the character in Paradise Lost. They're not necessarily saying this about Satan in the Bible, but it is looked upon as this really revolutionary text for our understanding of things like paradise and free will. Very interesting stuff. I had never read Paradise Lost, still never have. I certainly know of it. And if you would have asked me at the start of this, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's where the person goes through all the different layers of hell, which no, I realized Dante's Inferno, is Dante's Inferno. Which is another Keanu Reeves movie. It's the John Wick series. At me if you if you like. But anyway, I wanted to talk about it not just because... John Milton is the name of the character, but because I think we're seeing very much these parallel stories of a Satan who is on earth trying to nurture mankind's impulses, trying to tempt mankind away from God, trying to lure Kevin Lomax into fighting for his side in the great battle. But we're also seeing the story, the epic story of a marriage and a love between a man and a woman that ultimately is the salvation of Kevin. And yes, we, we still have a wink at the end. Vanity is my favorite sin. The devil is still here and he will still keep trying to tempt Kevin. But when push came to shove, Kevin thought about Marianne 
and Kevin found a way back to her, right? And in their marriage, in their love, he finds a new kind of innocence, a higher innocence that can be sexual, it can be lustful, it can be vain, it can be prideful, it can be greedy, it can be slothy. I don't know, I'm just listing all the seven deadly sins, but like it can have all of those things in it and still be heaven. Paradise can be a condo. Paint the walls green. And it's worth noting that they're in Florida. You know, what is Florida? Why did people go and discover Florida and try to colonize it? Originally colonized by the Spanish who were looking for the fountain of youth, who believed. And you know where the fountain of youth is supposed to be, the fountain of youth park? It's in St. Augustine, St. Augustine, baby. They believed that this would be somehow maybe a pathway to immortality, a fountain left over potentially from the Garden of Eden, because the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were immortal. Death is their punishment for having eaten from the uh, the tree, having eaten the fruit. And so that they're in this place that has these sort of resonant um, themes close to the Fountain of Youth, Garden of Eden, and where do they go? They go to New York, and it is in New York where um, they end up getting tempted with civilization, where they get tempted with the blood money of being the lawyers, where they get tempted with the fruit. Yeah, Babylon. Anyway, Arthur's probably going to wake up from a nap any moment now. He's been stirring around, so I think we're going to wrap it. Tons of fun. Final thoughts for me, Devil's Advocate, don't underrate that movie. It's awesome. God is an absentee landlord. And until next time, (laughs) be kind. Be kind.